Okay, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 15, although I'm not entirely certain we'll get through it all, maybe we will, maybe we won't. John chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Lord, we need you. We need you so much. That's the whole point of this text here is just that we need you and we are hopeless without you. That you are the one who initiates the relationship with us and you are the one who maintains and you are the one who will ultimately bring us home to be with you so we might be with you forever, Lord. Face to face. Lord, the... Gospel and us being born again is so radical. The Nicodemus didn't believe it. The natural man doesn't believe it. We need you to believe it, Lord. So help us understand these things right now. Help our minds to think and our ears to hear the words that you have for us, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, I am going to back up just a little bit since we had Easter Sunday in between um, what we talked about at the beginning of this chapter and hear what we're talking about now. Remember, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. 
He ran out all of the money changers. He ran out all of those who were selling animals for sacrifices there at the Passover. He was questioned what authority, give, what, who gives you the right to do this? And he answered, well, I have the authority on my own, pretty much. And he declared himself to be the triumphant redeeming God by saying he was going to tear down this temple and in three days raise it up. And remember, the disciples didn't understand that at first, but later on were enlightened by the Spirit and understood he was speaking about his own body at his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Well, Nicodemus was one of these religious leaders who was questioning Jesus. He seemed to have a more um, honest bent to him. While the other characters who were called Pharisees were looking for ways that they could trip Jesus up in his words. They were looking for ways that they could accuse Jesus. Nicodemus seemed to be of a different sort. He was of the ilk that was actually wondering if the things Jesus was saying were true. And so, unlike the rest of the Pharisees, he approaches Jesus to have a private one-on-one conversation with him. Now, of course, This happens in the dark of night, so Nicodemus probably isn't exposed to prying eyes or whatnot. And maybe even the fact that Jesus had fewer people crowding around him in the evening. All of those things were probably contributing factors to this particular exchange. But Jesus meets with Nicodemus. Nicodemus goes right in. We know you're a teacher from God and no one can do the signs you do unless God is with them. And Jesus countered in turn, not beating around the bush. He immediately went to covenant theology. Remember, he goes back and he says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus doesn't understand that. And Jesus, we see in verse 10, says, What's your problem, dude? (laughs) You're a teacher of Israel. You are steeped in the word of God. In fact, from your youth, you have memorized the scriptures. You know them inside and out. He didn't need to learn original languages. He was the original language. Um, He's speaking in Hebrew, reading in Hebrew, studying in Hebrew, thinking Hebrew. We have a lot of hills to overcome in Western society in terms of making sure we understand what Scripture is saying. He had the path of least resistance, if there ever was one, and still he didn't understand these things. And Jesus mildly, but not subtly, rebukes him for his lack of knowledge, but then does illuminate and does give insight and give understanding. Remember, we looked at many of the passages in the Old Testament that pointed forward to the new covenant, right? We looked at those passages like Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, those valley of dry bones part. We're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. And right before that in Ezekiel chapter 36. 
We could go to many, many, many other passages in the Old Testament. But needless to say, what Jesus is doing right here is he's setting the stage for Nicodemus to show him and demonstrate, I think, very clearly, that salvation is not a human endeavor. That salvation is not something humans muster up on their own. I think that what Jesus is doing here, because he's talking to one of the Pharisees who firmly believed that part of their role was to usher in the messianic reign based on their obedience and good works, their faithfulness to the covenant, their fulfillment of the law. And Jesus is in no uncertain terms saying, no, that's not how redemption happens. They're looking for the kingdom of God. It's a universal trait. I think from the very beginning and post-Adamic fall, immediately people are looking for the kingdom of God. The great division, I think, with even Cain and Abel there in the earliest days was a result of each one of them endeavoring to see the kingdom of God and one coming on God's terms and one coming on his own terms. And that has not stopped throughout the history of the world. There have been two paths to seek the kingdom of God. There has been the man-made man-centered, self-styled religions of the world that have even pervaded the halls of the Christian church. There are many within even the Christian church, and I'll speak to that right now since that's closest to home for us, who do see themselves as having somehow come to the kingdom of God on their own. Maybe perhaps it's been through doing good works, right? We've talked about this before, that people have a mindset, well, I do good things. And if you were to ask them one of those diagnostic questions from Evangelism Explosion, if God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? Many, many people would say, well, I've done this and this and this and this. And they think that's the right answer, right? They think that this is honestly the way that it's supposed to be. They don't even bat an eye. And it isn't like they're trying to come up with something real quick. They're like, oh, I know how to answer that. Yeah, I've given money to the Jesus Center. I've, you know, um, helped drunk college students home in the middle of the night and chaperoned them to protect them. I've, you know, instead of Uber, I did Goddard and I drove people around for free. And, you know, I don't know. I'm making that last one up there. But, you know, there's just these people do good things and they think those good things counteract or contradict or um, weigh in the balances better than the bad things that they've done. But the flip side of that is people really don't think they've done a lot of bad things. People think that they're good people, right? That's the flip side of that. You think you can do good works because you think more highly of yourself than you actually ought to think. So people expect to see the kingdom of God because they honestly think deep down they're kind of okay anyways. Yeah, I've done some bad things here, but I'm not Charlie Manson. Yeah, I've done some bad things here, but I'm not now. I've done some bad things here, but I'm not whatever you want to fill in the blank there. 
Those who compare themselves by themselves and amongst themselves, the Bible says, are not wise. And the reason is, is because I can make comparisons with people all year long. And I will always find people I'm better than. The standard by which I'm supposed to compare myself as a human being is not other human beings. The standard by which I must compare myself is the law of God. Here's what God said his standard is. Every human being falls short in that category. Every single person will fail when it comes to us needing to meet up to God's righteous requirement. Even Adam. Let's face it. He was the very best person that has ever lived created by God. If any single person has ever lived that actually had a free will, it was Adam. Nobody else has free will. Nobody else has that. Adam maybe did, and we don't even understand that because there's only two chapters that we have in the Bible that tell us anything about Adam, and it's not very much. It's precious little. So it doesn't do us a lot of good to scrutinize that. But what we do know is when God created Adam, it was very good, over and above the rest of his creation. Now, that goodness was short-lived, Because whatever type of will that he did have found his way over to the tree that was forbidden and the covenant that God made with Adam was broken. I don't know how long it took. It certainly seems like it didn't take very long for him to go over there and violate that covenant. And in violating that covenant, All of the rest of humanity now, because we are descendant from that Adam, that singular person who was created by God, have been plunged into sin and our nature is such that we inevitably will sin. Joel and I were just talking before the service and we were talking about Ben and how he's at the stage now where his little... Almost adorable sin nature is coming out (laughs) in that he is defiant. Now, anybody who's ever had kids, that doesn't surprise you. So I'm not just picking on Joel and picking on Ben here. It's inevitable. You have kids, you know it's going to happen because it always has happened and it always will happen because we're all sinners. Little, little, little cute bundles, but it's bundles of sin nonetheless. And as we grow and as we become more mature, all we do is grow in our sin and find new mature ways to sin. But we sin nonetheless because it's our very nature, right? Someone has once said, stealing a horse doesn't make you a horse thief. You were a horse thief and that's why you stole the horse. Now that's true, I think, in part because we all are sinners and maybe your particular sin and your particular proclivities in that area are not the stealing of horses, but they're certainly there and they're certainly manifold. (laughs) I don't need to know you very well to know that. In fact, I don't need to know you at all to know that. This is why we cannot see the kingdom of God on our own. No amount of good works because you're not good. No amount of moralism, because you're not moral. No amount of 
sitting in some kind of spiritual therapy is going to ever help you see the kingdom of God because you are spiritually irreparable. You must be born again. Your first birth didn't do it and can never do it. That's the thing to remember. It cannot get you to where you need to be spiritually. All the first birth can do is get you alive, breathing, crying, moving, thinking, existing. That's all it can do. At best, at best, all it does is make you a healthy individual that's on your way to a damned eternity. That's at best. So when he says here, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that's all that being born of flesh can do is fleshly things. It cannot accomplish your spiritual need. Every person has a spiritual need and it is to be born again and you don't have the capacity in and of yourself to do it because you are only flesh. So what do you do? You see, this is the dilemma Nicodemus is wrestling with. He's no dummy, right? Now, I I didn't mean if I did to paint him uh, in the beginning earlier as some kind of bumpkin like, how could that be? It's not how Nicodemus is. He is very, very clever, and he is tracking with Jesus, but he is so steeped in man-centered religion, which, let's face it, almost everybody is, that that's why this consternation comes in the mind of Nicodemus. How can that be? How can it be that when I do this, 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 and this? How can that be when I've been commanded to do this, 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 and this? How can it be when God said this, 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 and my life seems to be leading me down the path where I'm doing these things God says to do? How can it be that I must be born again? And the answer that Jesus replies to him is, all you're doing is fleshly. You're doing actions that you think are actual spiritual good, but they're purely fleshly actions. In fact, if anything, you're heaping condemnation upon yourself because you're doing things that can never accomplish the ends that you think they can because you think too much of yourself, because you are very, very self-centered. That's where we are as people. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So Nicodemus says, well, how can a person be born again? Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What in the world does that look like? Being born again? Well... In 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says this. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, this is what we've just been talking about, 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, their folly to them, their foolishness, their crazy talk, because he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul says that natural people are utterly incapable of understanding these spiritual truths. So it's indicative of Nicodemus here saying, well, how can a man be born again? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb? Of us to say of him, he's not born again. He's not saved at this point. He is not right with God. He is not in a position that he's going to see the kingdom of God. If Nicodemus, after this event, at this moment, were to have dropped dead according to the will of God, he would not be one who is seeing the kingdom of God. Because they're spiritually discerned, and we see right here, he is not discerning spiritual things. Jesus, in John chapter 6, we'll get to that in, I don't know, maybe a year (laughs) or so, I don't know, maybe less. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father. No one can. No one has the ability to come to the Father. No one. We don't have that ability on our own. We don't have it naturally. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. This is the state of all mankind. This is why we must be born again. And the, born, the new birth has nothing to do really with you and me any more than your original birth had to do with you. You, you didn't have anything to do with it. You had no say in the matter. You just were there at a point in time of God's choosing, of God's timing, of God's ordaining. You exist because God decided it was time for you to exist. You were born because it was God's sovereign will for you to be born physically. You had nothing to do with it. Your parents came together. They probably came together lots of other times and kids weren't born, but they came together this one time and here you were. Little cute sinner, like we were talking about earlier. Well, you didn't have anything to do with that. And guess what? You don't have anything to do with your second birth either. Now that is going to grind some people's gears. I understand that. For many, 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 many years, I ministered and functioned under the impression that if I were to say the right words in the right way with the right maybe emotional tuggings of here and there, that I could bring people to Christ. So we would go out and we would have these um, lessons of street evangelism and then we would go out street witnessing and we had this script that we would basically go down and we knew the answer to a bunch of different questions and the idea was that if we were to plug the right answers in at the right time in the right way then and this person should make the right response to the Lord. Now lots of times I could and you know, we, when I was out with other people, we certainly did emotionally bring people into the kingdom. Although I don't think they came into the kingdom. Maybe some did. Because God does what he wants to do. The spirits like the wind. It blows where it wishes. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. 
But for me, I always, there was something in the back of my mind after going out and doing that for a number of times that left me feeling wanting. And the reason for me wasn't because of the action of going out there and doing it. I actually think it's good work. I actually think it is a means by which the Lord does save people. But for me, it was the manner in which we were doing is this scripted, almost like putting puzzle pieces together. And if you put the puzzle pieces together in the right way, you get the right picture, and then you have this thing established, which is this new birth. What we were trying to do is get people to make a decision. The problem is the Bible says you can't make this decision. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. It's folly to him. No man can come to the Father on his own without the drawing of Jesus Christ via the Holy Spirit. No one is going to see the kingdom without being born again. This is something that happens to you, not you do in and of yourself. But you say, well, what about the gospel? The gospel has to be heard. Certainly, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's absolutely certain. It's settled, established. Nobody's arguing Romans 10. Faith certainly comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But the word of God is the means by which God has ordained he would save people from their sins. So while the spirit certainly does blow where it wants to, it never saves anybody at the exclusion of hearing the gospel message, which is why it's so important for us to go out and evangelize. It's why missions are vital, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so they need to hear the word of God so that the Spirit will do his work in and amongst their lives. How can a man be born a second time? Can he enter into his mother's womb? Jesus says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, and I liken that to the flesh, I don't think that's baptism. I know there are some people out there that say it's baptism. I don't think so. I think there's water when you're born. I think this is talking about the fleshly birth. I think this is parallelism here. Verse five, unless one is born of the water and the spirit. Verse six, one is born of flesh and spirit. You see, I, I think it's that simple. But unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being born of the spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes these words. Who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, the message of the gospel is folly, it's foolishness, it's stupidity to the rest of the world. But it's the means by which God has seen fit to save people so that he would be glorified. You see, the world doesn't go, wow, that's amazing, somebody got saved through the gospel. They go, they got saved through that? And it's utter foolishness to them. But it brings God glory because it is so foolish to 
the rest of the world. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we don't preach either one of those things. We don't preach signs. We don't seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. And this is a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Gentiles. But, but, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For, listen, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble in your birth. You see, God chose what is foolish in the world to put to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, consider your calling. Consider your calling. Think about it. You've heard my story enough. You know my calling. I was no good, down and out, idiot, drug addict, stupid by all, every measure of the word. And yet God saw fit to come into my life and say, your life, Patrick Mathers, is no longer yours. Your life is mine. He called me to himself. I didn't come to him. He's the one who chose me. He's the one who took the foolish of this world. He's the one that took the weak of this world. He's the one that took the low and despised of this world. He's the one who did this in my life so that he might be glorified. He receives glory. He receives honor. He receives praise. And my boast is only in him, you see. I have no position to boast because I wasn't out looking for God. I was flesh. I was born of water. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was foolish, I was weak, I was stupid, I was despised in this world. And God, for his own plan and purpose, so that he might be glorified for all eternity, saw fit to save me from my sins. And he's the one who caused me to be born again. He gets all the glory. I get none of it. And I don't want any of it. The new birth is all about God. The new birth is all about Christ and him crucified. The new birth is all about the Holy Spirit doing his work of causing me to be born again. You see, redemption is all about the Trinity being glorified and magnified forever and ever and ever and ever. 
My redemption is caught up in inner Trinitarian works and acts of love towards one another so they all would be glorified in the redemption of this weak, foolish, stupid idiot of a sinner. This is why we must be born again. And if, beloved, you don't see yourself in the words that Paul describes here, then perhaps you're not saved. Perhaps you are not right. Perhaps you are the one, like Nicodemus, who thinks more highly of himself than he ought to. But maybe you're hearing this message because he is calling you. And he is drawing you to himself. And maybe you've been in a church for years and this is suddenly settling on you in a way that it hasn't before. That can happen. That's a good thing. The Lord uses the means of the preaching of the gospel to cause people to be born again. And here the gospel is being proclaimed, I think, hopefully clearly. And the Spirit promised that that's where he would move and he would work in the lives of people. In James chapter 1, James said, Of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we should be a first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The means by which we are brought to the Father is the preached word of God, the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's the one who determines whom he saves and when he saves. The how he saves is already set. The how he saves is through the preached word of God. You need to hear the word of God in order to be saved. But he's the one who does the saving work. In Ephesians chapter 1, oh boy, I'd love to spend a whole load of time here. But I won't. Beginning in verse 11, he says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So in him, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, again, to the praise of his glory. You see, we were dead. Everything we've obtained, we've obtained because it was God's will to give it to us. And he is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is where the sovereignty comes from in sovereign joy. He works everything according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see, the result of being born again, the result of being called to Christ, the result of the new birth is glory to God. All the glory goes to God. Any other method, any other system, any other means by which we preach that doesn't ultimately bring glory to God, but instead brings glory to the individual, is found wanting. It's not accurate. 
In him, when we heard the word of the truth, the gospel of our salvation and believed in him, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our our inheritance. Again, to the praise of his glory. The praise of his glory is the important thing when we're looking at matters of salvation. Jesus here says he cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born of the Spirit. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said these things to you, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Earlier this week, I was sitting in a chair and I just was looking out the window and, and thinking, and you know, there, there are so many things that go on in the world that go unnoticed by nearly everybody. I think the wind blowing is one of those things. I had to sit there and I had to look and I had to see these leaves blowing and dust kind of blowing across the street there and look at flowers fluttering back and forth to realize here's all of this taking place and I am observing this, but it really doesn't have anything to do with me. All of this is happening because God has ordained all of this to happen and it's glorifying him. You know, there's that silly question, if a tree falls in the wilderness and there's no one here to hear, there to hear it, does it make a sound? Of course it does, because there's always someone there to hear it. God Almighty, who created the heavens and the earth. (laughs) He is always there, and everything happens for the glory of God. Even insignificant things like the blowing of wind outside. Right now, that's probably happening, that nobody's observing the effects of it. And when I think about redemption, I, I kind of think of it like that. We've already saw that the Lord loves to save the weak, the despised, the outcasts, the ones who, for all other intents and purposes, are not the mighty and the influential and the noble of this world. You see, the Spirit blows where it wishes, and what it seeks to do, and what He seeks to do, is bring those to himself who the Father has ordained, who Christ has secured their redemption, so that he might be glorified for all time, because these are the greatest objects of his affection. I don't think that's an overstatement. We love him because he first loved us. We become objects of his affection. We become, as it were, trophies of his grace. Objects for which we can be on display for all eternity that he is the glorious mighty God and mighty Savior. Jesus Christ, Father God, Holy Spirit, all are his, pardon me, all are our saviors, as it were. And this happens, I think, in ways and means that are mostly to the rest of the world out there mundane. Just sitting and talking with somebody. 
talking about how I'm a new person now and how I'm not who I used to be. Sometimes it has to do with somebody's in a difficult position and we are able to reach out to them and share the gospel with them. And it is the means, or pardon me, it is the moment which the Lord is moving in that person's heart and in that person's life as well. We don't know how this works. We just know that it does work. And you know what? We don't have to worry about all of the behind the scenes stuff. Ours is to be faithful to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's the one who will do the saving how he sees fit. I don't need to emotionally manipulate you and I don't need to tell you all kinds of, you know, stories and pull on your heartstrings. I need to tell you, you're a sinner. You're going to hell if you don't repent. Believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because his death and his burial and his resurrection is the only means by which anyone can be saved. It's, it's simple, profoundly simple. So profoundly simple, that's one of the reasons the world laughs at us and laughs at it. I can't save. We must do something. As we close, remember there's that story back in the Old Testament and Naaman the Syrian, he has leprosy and he comes to Elijah because he's heard that Elijah will heal. And Elijah doesn't even go out to meet him. He sends his servant out to meet him. Sounds kind of like the weak and the foolish of the world kind of thing. Naaman the Syrian is this big, impressive person. And through this servant, he tells him, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman the Syrian scoffs at that message. Turns his back and is ready to walk off and take all of his entourage along with him. And then his little servant girl, as it were, I I imagine in my own mind, kind of tugs on his robe and says, Naaman, if he had told you to climb up the mightiest mountain, or if he told you to travel across the greatest sea, or if he told you to get this, you know, slay the dragon, I mean, that's not, but you get what I'm saying, do this mighty quest, you would most certainly go and do it. You see, that's the way the world thinks. We've got to do this mighty thing. And instead, God's means are so much different than the world's means. The little girl's word prevails upon Naaman, and he go dip seven times and comes out pure. It says his skin was softer than a baby's. The word of God will not fail. It will never fail. It will never come back void. It will always accomplish exactly what the Spirit sends out to accomplish. God's ways are not our ways. We have no business trying to make something more of the method than God has made. We have no business changing the message where God hasn't changed it. Our business is to be about the preaching and proclamation of the very same gospel that the Spirit used when he called you. Consider your calling, brothers. And remember by which you came to the Lord. And be grateful and praise God. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing more wonderful than this kind of, I'm just going to say it, sovereign joy. This joy that comes through trusting in God's sovereign work and plan and purpose in our lives.
He's the one who does the saving work. He's the one who caused me to be born again. He's the one who called me to himself. He's the one who predestined and purposed me. He's the one who receives all the glory and honor, the praise. And all I can do is just worship him. And that is the greatest thing in all of the world. It's the greatest joy I can possibly have resting in his sovereign, perfect hands and purpose. Amen. Amen. Father God. We love you because you did indeed first love us. Lord, we pray that as you have saved us, Lord, through the preaching of your word by means of your spirit, that, Lord, you would save others in this way as well. We glorify you for the salvation you've given to us, and, Lord, we pray that you would use us as means by which you would save others too. Lord, we thank you so much. We can never, ever, ever be grateful enough for your redemption. But Lord, it's good and we love you. In your name, amen.